You're listening to Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I'm your host, AJ Fraser. In this episode, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Shannon Ezat. Shannon is a professor of mathematics at Cape Breton University. Um, he's a relatively new faculty member here, although he has deep roots uh, to the university. He's actually from here. He's from the Glace Bay area. And having studied away for a long time, having worked away for a long time, we're happy to have him here as he is an exemplary teacher, uh, somebody who really connects with his students. In this episode, we're going to talk about math pedagogy, resources, difficulties, challenges, and the opportunities we have in teaching fields like mathematics, especially in departments that are service areas at universities like our own. Math is tough. Math is confusing and mysterious for some people, and it's great to listen to Shannon um, dispel some myths and talk about it both from the high school perspective and teaching math teachers for high school, as well as the post-secondary level and trying to inspire a new generation of math academics. So buckle in uh, for a great episode and we will talk to you after the turn. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Mathematics, Physics, and Geology, but I'm a mathematician. I'm on the mathematics side. So, you know, you, you came here just under a year ago, but you have a, a longer history, history with CBU um, than that. And, you know, what's your academic background? Where have you been? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm originally from Glace Bay, which is, um, for those of you not from Cape Breton listening to this podcast, it is 10 minutes to the east of uh, Cape Breton University, so right in the community. Um, and then after high school, I did my um, undergrad degree at Dalhousie University in Halifax. And then I did a, it's called a Graduate Diploma of Teaching and Learning, but think of it like a BED, a Bachelor of Education, at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. And that's where I also did my PhD in mathematics. Um, and then after that, I moved back to Canada and my first job was, my first kind of full-time contract job was um, as a limited-term assistant professor in the math department at Cape Breton University for two years. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, how, how much difference is there in the way that um, math or maths, I don't know how they do it in, in New Zealand, but how the, the sort of the mathematics discipline in New Zealand versus Canada? Was your education widely different? Did people tackle things differently or math being a universal language, was it all the same? Yeah, it's it's very close to being the same, I guess. Um, the only big difference, and this isn't kind of from a mathematics standpoint, but more kind of the university system standpoint overall, is in British-style systems like New Zealand and the UK and Australia, the, they don't do as much of the liberal arts education, kind of when you pick what you want to do at university, you predominantly take those classes. So um, people who were taking mathematics at the university that I was at in their undergrad, they were taking a lot more mathematics than, say, um, people at uh, comparable universities in North America. But people in North America would be taking other classes like more sciences, more philosophies, more whatever. There were more electives in your, uh, in your degree in North American universities compared to um, British-style universities. It being a British style university, do they pronounce it maths? They do. They yes. do. Yeah. I, I, the, I watched the YouTube channel Stand Up Maths. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's fantastic. I forget yeah. his name. Yeah, me too. I don't uh, know who you're talking Anyway, about. Yeah. fantastic. But every time he says maths, I think that's, that's not right. Um, but it is right. Uh, so <laughs> what, can you tell me a little bit about your, um, your research historically over your academic career? Maybe kind of what you're doing now? Is yeah, yeah for same? sure. Yeah. So um, I, did my PhD under uh, Ben Martin, and we did something called representation growth, which is a subset of the idea of, let's call it asymptotic group theory. 
I'm going to say a bunch of buzzwords now. I, I apologize in advance. My, my two closest friends in high school had their high school band was called Asymptote. Oh. <laughs> there you go. They were math nerds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, the idea is there's these things called groups, and they are just the way mathematicians kind of think about symmetry. Uh, so let's call it the jargon of symmetry in mathematics. Um, um, but there, it can be quite a difficult thing to study, especially when you have groups that are kind of large in dimension. And by large in dimension, I was dealing with infinite dimensional groups, whatever that means. Um, so they're very hard to kind of get a handle on. So the idea is you look at substructures of them and hopefully those substructures, which you can um, think about a little more clearly, uh, you can work out uh, properties of the bigger symmetry or the bigger group um, from those substructures. And the the substructures that we were looking at, you can think of um, as, what do I want to call these? Let's call these irreducible representations. So ways of turning the group into sets of matrices that behave the same way as um, the symmetries themselves, whatever that means. And even those are kind of hard to study. So what we did instead is we counted how many of these irreducible representations there are. It's not quite that. They're, they fall into something called twist equivalence classes, whatever they are. <laughs> but the point is there's finitely many of these twist equivalence classes, so you can count them. Um, and so you count them for each size of matrix, and then you study that sequence of numbers that you get for each size of matrix. And the way you do that is you embed them as coefficients in something called a zeta function, which is, for those of you who have taken first-year calculus, you can think of it like a Taylor series, except you're now allowed to um, put in complex numbers instead of just real numbers. It's very related to something called a P-series. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, the, the end goal is, so studying things about that zeta function tells you in the long indirect process about properties of the group that you're studying originally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also, for, for those of you who are bored already, um, the last couple of years, so I, I left this out, but um, after my time at CPU, I spent a year at St. Francis Xavier University, and then I got a, uh, a position as a senior instructor, so that was predominantly a teaching position at the University of Winnipeg for five years. So I've been thinking a lot about teaching math and the best way to teach math. So um, part of my research program now is um, thinking about mathematics education and the stuff that I'm looking at myself is the role that logical reasoning plays in student success, especially things like counterexample. How well do students um, come into university understanding the idea of counterexample um, and other logical um, ideas um, like universal quantifiers, existential quantifiers, whatever. But um, the idea is how well do they understand this coming into university? Um, how much does their understanding affect their success in courses? Um, how well they learn these things just by osmosis rather than being taught kind of, uh, what do I want to say? Explicitly. Explicitly, that's a perfect word. Um, and um, is this a good thing? You know, it's one of these, what, how, do, how do I say this? One of the most fundamental things in mathematics, and in some sense the most fundamental thing, is the way we think about um, our, our problems in a logical manner. But in um, high school and uh, high school education and before that, it's not really touched upon very well and rarely touched upon explicitly. So um, one thing that uh, I find very interesting is how important this is to university math and everything past that, but how little of uh, importance gets uh, placed on it in pre-university mathematics. Very interesting. There was a, uh, an article I was just sort of glazing over by um, E. Dubinsky, I think it was, and, and it's about math pedagogy and changing math, math pedagogy. And uh, it, the, I think where I was getting to in the article was that it was saying that 
even though there people are oftentimes changing or or trying to to shape um, how math courses are taught pre, I guess pre secondary mm-hmm. education, um, oftentimes it's uh, just the content that's changing, and then over time it just kind of shakes out that the same content ends up, ends up being created, and that the real revolution needs to happen in how math is taught and how we think about math being taught in um, junior high and high school, um, that things need to be maybe more open-ended, allowing students to learn and explore um, in, a, in a guided fashion rather than just giving formulas and practice math. Uh, are you, I know you're working on a resource. I'm kind of curious you know, where, where you're taking things with that, that open educational resource. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'll, uh, I'll go on a very long explanation with this whole thing. But um, you're right in saying that uh, mathematics, you know, even with all the advances and what, you know, how math should be taught, um, a lot of times it ends up being the same math taught in the same way. Um, I had a student over uh, the summer for a month. Her name is uh, Claire McGilvery. And she was helping me do a little literature review of kind of lo- the what's known about um, logical reasoning in um, in uh, high school and before, and its importance in the university's uh, setting. And one thing that she came across is um, that a lot of times, if your teachers, especially elementary and junior high school teachers, if they um, aren't particularly comfortable in thinking about math in a new way, say that, you know, some research came, research came out and said, you know, you should be teaching math in this particular way. Um, if they're not comfortable with mathematics enough to really understand that, then they kind of revert back to the way that they've been taught. Right. So you get this kind of self-perpetuating cycle of traditional mathematics teaching. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just making sure that um, the teachers that are coming out of university are comfortable and fluent enough in mathematics at every level that they really understand what's going on and they can incorporate this new research into their teaching uh, easily and intelligently because they really understand the stuff. And that's something that that um, I really believe in. And... Um, Let's let me let me uh, what do I want to say? Let me go on a tangent, but then that tangent will lead back to what we were originally talking about. Sure. Um, when I was at the University of Winnipeg, um, I was hired to predominantly teach math for elementary school teachers courses. So there would be courses that students would take before they got into their BED, um, but it would be basically specifically designed for students who were going off to do elementary education. Right ostensibly no other student could take that class. It ended up being a couple others just, you know, kind of shoehorned their way in there, but it was predominantly future elementary school teachers. Um, And after teaching that class, I've taught um, versions of that class maybe 20 times while I was there, quite a a large number of times. Um, I really got to see the importance of really getting the students to understand why the mathematics happens and not just how to do it. Um, And on that end, um, I want to design, or I am in the process of designing an open educational resource, which is basically you can think of it as an online textbook that kind of looks at math for elementary school teachers through the lens of really understanding why and being able to justify um, the mathematics that's done in um, say kindergarten to grade nine, or whatever. So it's it's very logical based. It's very understanding based, and it's kind of in some sense assuming that students know the procedures for the most part. There's a little refreshers at some points, but it's more about why these procedures work the way they do, and why do we care, and how to think about mathematics at a logical level, um, how to problem solve. So. Um, yeah, very, very much not just a, you know, here's some math practice, now practice and do it. Um, there is a role for practice, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that people shouldn't practice mathematics, but the understanding of mathematics is vitally important to 
doing any mathematics beyond what exactly you've been taught. And that's the power of mathematics, is that if you understand how to think mathematically, you can take problems that you haven't seen before and reason your way through them through the language and skills of mathematics to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of the end goal is to get these teachers up to that level so they can teach the math that they're required to in the curriculum with lots of understanding behind it. So if students are making mistakes, they can understand just by the looking at the student's work conceptually where the student is going wrong, not just procedurally, but conceptually. And I think that's really important. When I first learned how to program, which I guess was probably back in 2014, learned how to write code. Um, i not a big computer person. I never had any desire to do it. I just wanted to build things. And um, what I was very surprised by was not the acquisition of the, um, the ability to read the language that I was in, if that was just something simple like HTML or CSS or if it was JavaScript, knowing what closing, you know, end tags yeah, yeah. are and, and all the different uh, components of it. But the process about learning and using a language, um, a coding language, and being able to go step by step through it and do this, if this, then that process, which was revolutionary for me. And now I kind of have a bit of an insight into how, let's say, engineers work and how they tackle problems. And, and it sounds somewhat sim similar, you know. Exactly. Teach people, yeah. teach people how to think. Yeah. And how to solve their own problems, not necessarily just the problem itself. Exactly. And that's kind of, that's the important bit of mathematics in some sense. And there's, you know, other important bits. I mean, mathematics is a very rich and beautiful field. And you just don't want students thinking it's, oh, here's how to compute a bunch of things or to multiply, divide, add, subtract, deal with polynomials. It's a lot more than that, you know, and students don't really see that until they come to university. And if they're lucky enough to take some more beautiful and interesting mathematics classes. Like group theory is all about symmetry. So you see some really interesting um, ideas come out of that. Or um, what else do I want to say? Fractals. So that's kind of some geometry slash topology. And just the, the, the beauty of, uh, and that's just kind of a beauty you can see. But if you're, if you're, fluent in mathematics and understanding um, what's going on, you see these beautiful results kind of everywhere. Um, the way that people describe these objects called groups, you can think of them without talking about symmetry. There's like four rules, um, basically, that you can do nothing. There's a, yeah, there's a do nothing element. Um, there is something called associativity, so brackets don't matter. Um, you can always undo what you did, so there's inverses. Um, yeah, and there's, there's other rules, yeah, just to, to what I want to say, to not bore the reader. But anyway, the point is, is that you can say, well, here's these objects. We didn't even mention symmetry, but it can be shown that just these rules always have to do with symmetry. There's something called Cayley's theorem, which says, like, Anything that satis any finite set of things that satisfies these rules is a symmetry of something, which is bonkersly amazing. Yeah. From these four simple rules, you get all symmetries. Very interesting. So to write a new resource where, you know, the intention is obviously to get educators uh, interested and engaged in the material and starting to think like a, like a very passionate mathematician like yourself, somebody who thinks math is the... The like everybody should be studying math. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've had this conversation before, you know, and and so to 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 try and instill that uh, love and understanding in these future educators. What role does the writing and the language and the type of prose that you use in your explanation of these ideas in your uh, educational resource? What does that play? Because I would imagine communication is a big part of it. Absolutely, and I think people forget how language-based mathematics is, especially the algebra side of it. You know, writing down an equation, even something like, you know, 2x plus 5 equals 11, you know, that says, you know, quite a bit just there. What does equals actually mean? You know, 2x, what does that say? Um, so there's a, there's a lot of content just kind of hidden in that short expression. And that's kind of the beauty of mathematics is it really takes the essence of what you want to, to look at 
and um, strips away everything else. It only really cares about the relationships between quantities, or at least not just quantities, but let's say things. But you can think quantities if you like. Um, and that's how it's very powerful. But you have to be careful. Remember that if you are writing for uh, an audience, and anybody who's writing any sort of mathematics is writing for some audience, you have to make sure that it's written at the level that somebody else can understand your ideas. So if I'm doing notes, say, for a fourth year algebra class, so, you know, students who have taken lots of mathematics and are are pretty smart. I'm going to write in a completely different way than um, students in, say, a first-year statistics class for biologists and nurses or mathematics for elementary school teachers' classes. They usually come in not having taken a, a university class before, university mathematics class before, or um, they and or they have a very negative view towards mathematics. So it is just a matter of uh, making sure that you're uh, putting these ideas out in a way that um, students understand, and it's a it's a harder job than a lot of people give it give credit for. I think any time that you are you know you are the content expert and you're incredibly passionate about it, to remove yourself from from those decades of experience and um, you know like just sort of deep deep understanding of the subject and to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who really doesn't necessarily care about the thing you care about. Yeah, yeah. And to, to start from there and say, okay, how could I get this person interested? Um, I think that's a challenge for anybody. And, I'm, you know, is this something that you encounter in your work so far? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, especially in, in teaching, um, especially in, say, service classes, so classes for, let's say, non-math majors, there's, at least the way I teach, there's a lot of performance in there, you know? You have to really keep these students engaged and let your passion shine through what you're doing. Um, and that's really, really important. Um, a lot of, what do I want to say here without being too controversial? It's not particularly uncommon that students have experience in high school and junior high math where their teachers don't have that mathematical passion for one reason or another. So they don't, it's not instilled in them. So when you, when they come to university, you really need to be the first person to, to really awaken them to the beauty and enthusiasm of mathematics, you know? Yeah. So I think the first, uh, the first thing that needs to, be true is the instructor has to find mathematics beautiful and have passion for it. But once you have that, it's just a matter of thinking, how do you get that to shine through without being, you know, too off the wall and, and too much of a show? Yeah. yeah. You yeah. don't want to start doing cartwheels or whatever. No, no. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I went to Memorial High School um, in Sydney Mines. And um, when we were in grade 11, my closest friend started taking um, classes from uh, Murdoch McNeil, and he was a rock star teacher. Uh, actually, you know, closer to the end of his career than uh, than the beginning, certainly. And he taught with such passion and conviction, in such a straightforward way, and treated his students like competent adults. Um, that these friends of mine ended up taking every course he offered, every class they could possibly take from him. Uh, you know, pre-cal, calculus, all this stuff, and ended up on math elites and all of that, and they weren't particularly math-oriented people. And I always regret actually not taking that class with him because he was just one of those teachers that was able to instill a passion in the subject uh, in others. Um, you mentioned that, you know, the mathematics department at CBU is not, uh, it's not like a, a, a huge department, and, and a lot of the work that you folks do is in servicing other uh, departments, nursing, you mentioned, I think, education, um, uh, and engineering. engineering yeah. Yeah. Um, and so are there particular challenges to being a faculty member where, you know, you are, you're teaching your subject to a wide variety of different disciplines and, and students who have, you know, careers and desires that are very different from your own, right? They're not looking for that kind of pure right, yeah. math. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I want to say. That is the case for almost every math professor 
across the country, definitely, <laughs> and maybe in the world. Uh, math is a discipline where um, almost everybody in the sciences and lots of people outside the sciences need some mathematics courses. So um, just like any other university, our first-year classes are very large, and there's lots of them. And then the upper-year classes get smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, even at a university like Dalhousie, where I did my PhD, you know, that's a university where they have PhD students. Or sorry, I did my undergrad at Dal. But they, they, it is a, you know, a university where they award doctoral degrees. It's, you know, a proper research-focused university. Um, even their mathematics courses in the fourth year, you know, I've been in courses with five students, four students, you know, a big upper year mathematics class that isn't kind of cross-listed with something like computer science, but that's just math. You know, a big one might be 10 or 12 students. It's just that's the nature of the mathematics game. It happens at every university. In fact, uh, this year coming up is actually really interesting and really awesome is that we have quite large upper year classes. So um, my I'm teaching a third year combinatorics class, which is how to count things. It's, it's harder than it sounds. <laughs> Counting is very hard. Um, but that is, last that I've checked, all the seats are full in that class, which is really amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, that I mean, that's how mathematics goes. You know, our, our upper year classes are smaller, but our, our lower year classes are huge. And that's kind of, <laughs> mathematicians like to say, it's kind of the tacit understanding is that mathematicians don't complain about their large, you know, lower level classes as long as they get to teach the small upper year classes. Is it then your mission to try and, uh, you know, you're teaching to these other departments, maybe students who they don't exactly know specifically what they're going to be doing and to kind of pick them off one by one and, and change them into, um, you know, uh, math acolytes. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want to sound that that much of a mercenary about it, but I do want to. I really do want to instill what university mathematics is about and what it can do for a student. You know, and a lot of a lot of other subjects, especially in in high school and first year university, you do see kind of what the subject is about. There's, especially in first year university, there's a lot of intro to classes that give you a little slice of everything, right? So in an intro to biology, you start to see cell biology, you see anatomy, you see botany, you see a little bit of ecology, whatever, right? And in, in intro to chemistry, you see inorganic, inorganic chemistry, organic chemistry, analytic chemistry, whatever. Mathematics is a little bit different. This is kind of across the country. There's no real intro to math. It's calculus. For better or worse, that's what it is. Um, so it is a matter of showing students, even if they're just taking a calculus course, what can be done in mathematics and all these really interesting ways of looking at the world and studying patterns in all types of different ways. Um, and you know, showing students a little bit of that gets them interested in knowing some more. So even if they don't become math majors right away, they might say, well, I'll take another class, learn a little bit more. And then say by second year after they've taken one or two more classes, a lot of them do say, you know what? I find this much more fun than my other classes, so I'm gonna start taking more mathematics. And that's how kind of you get math majors. Very, very few students come into first year. This is kind of across the country, outside of, you know, um, bigger universities like the University of Waterloo. But um, a lot of students come in to first year not even thinking about majoring in math because they don't know what that looks like. You and, and James Preen, who is another professor in the mathematics department, yep. uh, chair of the department. Is he... uh, not anymore. Not As anymore. of like five <laughs> days ago, he's no longer I'm not, chair. I'm not quick on the draw <laughs> enough. Anyway, um, you guys had put something out there that I'd never really considered. But that mathematics can can almost be considered as a uh, a, a very broad um, basis to then move off from. So I come from the Bachelor of Arts, uh, you know, uh, pathway, and, and knowing that there are some of those Bachelor of Arts programs that really are just they're a good stepping stone either into academics or into another sort of working field, and that. You know, if you have a BA, you got a BA, you know, um, it's just learning how to do critical thinking and being able to write correctly and all these sorts of things. And that um, a mathematics degree is a really great baseline for 
tons of different STEM fields and that you can go into programming, you can go into sciences, you can go into medicine, all these things, and that they're crying for people who understand numbers. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, understanding numbers is important, but it's it's kind of I like to think as mat- of mathematics as more of a humanity subject than a uh, than a science. Like we don't really do the scientific method or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We just reason using logic, and I, that's what you do in humanities, right? So in some sense, it's kind of the same thing. You're learning critical thinking. You're learning writing skills. Writing in mathematics, we were talking about communication. That's really hard to write. Um, succinctly and accurately, but it's so important. And it's if you learn that skill, you've learned how to kind of, the big thing in math is covering absolutely every base that, that you can, so your, your results are airtight. And to write in a way that does that is a really hard and really important skill. So students are learning logic, critical thinking, writing, all in this mathematics degree. Now it's in a slightly different language. It's in, you know, there's a lot of algebra or other types of mathematics in there as well. But the same ideas apply. It's kind of you're learning these, what do I want to say, these more top-level skills. Um, doing a like a cursory Google about um, math pedagogy and, and innovations of math pedagogy before we have this interview, um, you know, it's clear to see I mean, just on the first page of Google from 2016 onwards to 2020 to 2021, that um, changes to math pedagogy and revolutionary math pedagogy is something that isn't just a um, kind of niche and interesting field for people of your standing, uh, but it's really captured the public imagination is important to a lot of people. You know, the first, some of the first results you see are a New York times article, USA today wired. And then there's, you know, every kind of major academic journal publishing. Um, why is this idea that we need to change how we teach math? So important to people. Why does it keep coming up over and over and over? Is this something that has always been going on as far as you understand or, um, you know, people just not getting it right? Well, I'm no mathematics education historian. Like, I, I'm a trained mathematician, and kind of I know a little bit about mathematics education, but it is something that's kind of always happened for various reasons. Um, back in the 60s, um, the states thought that they were losing the space race and the, you know, the Cold War, so, like, we need more uh, quantitatively inclined students. So they came up with new math whatever that means. <laughs> you know, there's no new math. Math is just math. But it's it was different than kind of the traditional, you know, here's how to add, subtract, multiply, divide, usual stuff. And there was a lot of pushback behind that because parents didn't understand it. And te- some teachers didn't really understand it and didn't teach it well. And um, then kind of the pendulum swung in the other direction. And they're like, this isn't working. Let's get, quote, unquote, back to basics. So they went back to basics and then people come up with something new and they try that. And this has kind of gone on, at least for the history of math education that I know. Um, why do people care about it so much? People do know it's important. If for no other reason, because they, they think of being good at math as some equivalent of being smart, whatever that means. I don't particularly agree with that, but that's what they think. Um, and so they think, you know, the more math you learn, the quote unquote, smarter you are. Um, so they want, you know, the, the best for their kids. They want their, their kids to be as smart as possible, whether it's their own kids or if you're a politician, you want kind of, you know, the future workforce kids to be as smart as possible. Um, but also beyond that, I think a lot of people have a lot of emotion attached behind their mathematics mathematics education. If you're really mathematically inclined, you have a very, very positive view of math. You get excited about math. But on the other end, a lot of people I've talked to about math, you can see them like they have a, you know, a guttural reaction thinking back to their their days in, in high school or before about struggling with math and not being able to do it and having very negative emotions around it. Very few people have kind of a, 
uh, what do I want to say, a neutral view of math. You either love it or you hate it, you know? If I, yeah, if I mentioned to somebody, what do you think of math? Very few people would say, well, whatever. They'll either say, oh, yeah, it's great, or, oh, I always hated math. I was never good at math, you know? Yeah. And it's weird, and it's it's so common, it's kind of accepted. Like, you know, if you ask somebody, if you say, you know, I, I teach math, many people will just tell me, you know, ah, I'm no good at math, you know, I, I don't know how to do math. But you'd ever see an English professor go to a party and say, oh, yeah, I'm an English professor, and some people are saying, yeah, I hate reading. I'm not very good at reading, you know? Right. So it's kind of accepted that mathematics is hard and difficult. So, um, yeah, there's views of kind of intelligence baked in there. There's views of um, emotion. I shouldn't say views of emotion, just emotion baked in there. And I think there are the two main reasons why people really care about this. But it's another thing. It's it's become very political in some sense. You know, it's just another thing that people care about. So it's another way to to divide people along two or more lines. Right. Yeah. Um, sort of coming back into the the, the post secondary world. Um, what are some things that you yourself, like over your teaching career, um, since you started here in your first contract and then, you know, the other institutions you've gone to, um, what are some changes that you've made to your own um, pedagogy in teaching math courses? And what are some of the things that you think have been the most effective way of getting through to students or increasing student engagement, both in the classroom or if you were teaching online? Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that I did, I did a little study in 2017 about the importance of logical reasoning. I, I focused on counterexample in um, mathematics for elementary school teachers' courses. And it turns out, to no surprise of mine, that it's very important. In fact, um, I was kind of surprised with how important it ended up being. Um, students that were good at logical reasoning had something like a 10-point difference in their grade compared to those who weren't. Whatever that means, you know, the, there's a lot of details hidden behind what I'm saying. But um, it ends up being important to student success, of course. Um, and that's one thing that I've really um, took to heart is that explicit teaching of logical reasoning is very important. And not even for, say, you know, just mathematics for elementary school teachers, uh, students, but calculus students, statistics students. I mean, you can go through a lot of math without explicitly being taught how to reason logically. They kind of do it a little bit by osmosis and give you some, you know, tips and tricks, but they never tell you why that works and why these are good ideas and what's actually going on behind, you know, showing, you know, if if you have two even numbers and you add them together, then you get another even number. How do we know that that's true? How can we show that's always true, you know? Even results like that, you're, you're not told how to think about things like that. And one thing that I've uh, been doing kind of since then is including that in, especially in my first year courses, a lot more. Um, whether it's just uh, kind of what I want to say, small uh, parts of an assignment, or even um, a, a lab kind of specifically set aside to um, to teach these concepts. And I'm teaching a first-year calculus course this coming fall, and that's going to be my first lab or second lab, is this is kind of a crash course in logical reasoning because we use it all the time, and you should know why we're doing these things. Yeah, besides logic, I think learning how to be an effective teacher just comes with lots of practice. Um, of course, you know, reading literature and thinking about um, teaching, but being comfortable in the classroom, being comfortable around students is really important, being engaging. And so I think a big thing for me, especially from when I started to now, is really thinking about how do I keep the students engaged, you know, in mathematics during the class. So I've gone away from kind of when I just, when I started my career, I was very into just kind of like the standard lecture format that most people have 
if they've gone to university have seen where the professor gets to the board and they talk about the subject whether you know written notes on the whiteboard or blackboard or via powerpoint i've moved from that to more of an active learning style um and it's you know it kind of ranges depending on uh the class and what i want to try from just you know including some uh some periods in class to actually try some problems and then talk about the problems that the students have tried just so they're um, thinking about the mathematics that they're learning and not just passively writing it down to something like a little more uh, of a flipped classroom type approach where they're watching a, you know short videos before they come to class and then we talk about those videos during class and then um, there's some you know concept check questions that they do and then they have assignments that they have time to work on in class with other students um, so things to keep the students engaged but making sure that what do I want to say I'm a big fan of flipped classrooms don't get me wrong but there is a role for um, the, the instructor modeling good mathematical behavior. So making sure that they see enough, see the instructor do enough math that they get into some good habit, good mathematical habits. And along with that is um, the instructor kind of showing off their enthusiasm for the subject. So you have to make sure that it's, the classroom isn't too flipped so, uh, for me, anyway, don't get me wrong. Every uh, every professor has a teaching style that works the best for them. Mm -hmm. And for me, I need to be able to to show off my enthusiasm for math to to get the students to pick up a little bit of that. You know, we all had to move online in um, spring of 2020, winter, spring of 2020, um, and and teach through this pandemic. And at the time, there was a kind of a uh, rapid remote or rapid transition to remote teaching and then that eventually uh, evolved into lots of folks teaching intentionally in online learning spaces and using uh, new technology and new methodology in their teaching was there anything from the pandemic period that you found was effective and you have now kind of like brought into you're, you're back on campus a lot or, you know, um, are you kind of like left that behind and happy to just be back in the classroom and face to face with students? Yeah, I'm definitely, if I never have to teach online again, that would be a good life. Don't get me wrong. There were some good things about teaching online, but it's just, at least for me and I find for students as well, it's more enjoyable to be kind of in that learning setting. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that, just being around people that are doing the same thing and talking about the same things with no real other immediate distractions. You know, online learning in some sense is, is, is great in a lot of accessibility ways. But you know what else is accessible? The rest of the Internet. You know, you can just click off that and you can play snood or whatever. Right. I don't know how many students are playing snood these days, but the point stands. It's just Shannon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Minesweeper. They're back on Minesweeper. Minesweeper. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think so. In the during the pandemic, um, I was at the University of Winnipeg, and I, for better or worse, I decided to do more of a an uh, asynchronous style lecture, and I was the only one in only one, there might have been one other person in the department that did something along those lines. But so the, the rest of the department decided to um, just basically teach the same way that they would teach in person, but now over Zoom. Um, but I thought for, for many reasons that didn't work for me and I didn't think would work for students particularly well. I might have been wrong. I mean, um, a lot of the professors there really thought that their, their teaching worked and, and the students did as well. But for me, I don't think that I would do it as effectively. But um, what I can say is that recording these videos really um, got me into kind of a good workflow in how to record a video. Mm -hmm. So um, it gave me a lot more, what do I want to say, a lot more ability to be able to do things like flip a class, quote unquote, easily. It's not, it, it takes a lot of time, mm -hmm. but I can do it way, you know, at, at, you know, a third of the speed now than I could 
or triple the speed, whatever. You know what I mean? Third yes. of the time. Yes. Triple the speed. <laughs> um, Says the math guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Then what I could kind of pre-pandemic, you just learn these skills and you have them off the top of your head right now. And the workflow becomes near immediate and, you know, kind of the best way to, um, to deal with kind of the administration side of that. So you're not kind of like uploading your video somewhere and then that video has to be kind of put somewhere else and then the link has to be put somewhere. Like all of those little annoying things just, I mean, if you, if you know anything about user experience, you wanna avoid as many of those kind of extra steps as possible for both the maker and the user. So, you know, I figured out a, a workflow that kind of is just like, I make the video, I press upload video, and it goes to somewhere where the students can then see, and then they can just click on the video themselves. So the workflow is very short for both of us, which is makes it more likely for us to do, you know, for both me and the students to actually do it, All right. which I think is great. But um, another thing, this is a very interesting thing. So... Um, after my first kind of completely online class during the pandemic, I gave a little poll to these students. They were these math for elementary school teachers students. On a scale of one to five, um, how do you like, you know, these online classes compared to in-person classes? So one was I vastly prefer in-person and five was I vastly prefer online. And I, this is the most unexpected result, but there was 20% of the students in it each of the five categories, which is really, really interesting. Wow, yeah. interesting. I think there's a little more research to be done there. Um, but, you know, just the small result, I think, says that universities should, what do I want to say? I think that just going with classes that cater to one method is um, putting uh, some students at a disadvantage. I would agree, and I think you summed that up in a really great way, and I think having that uh, little little tiny shred of, of evidence um, certainly gives me, it emboldens my my, my stance on it, right? We should have multi-mode, multi-mode, <laughs> multiple modes of access, uh, whether that be in-person, asynchronously online, synchronously online. There's lots of, I've had some great classes, been around some great classes where um, they're just fantastic online educators. Um, we have these wonderful dual mode rooms where there's a cohort of students in person in the classroom with a faculty member and they're online as well and they're able to access them. And for the faculty who um, really sort of take heed to things like participation and student engagement and really engage with those online students, they can have a wonderful experience and be able to access um, classes that they couldn't otherwise do, um, whether that be for reasons of um, you know, a physical disability or if they are located in a, in a different place and they're accessing CBU courses. Um, you know, from abroad or any of these, any or they have family situation, they might have uh, work commitments or children. So exactly, yeah. Um, you know, for, to make a university available for everybody, um, I think having the ability to take different streams and different approaches within lots of different programs is really important. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that that came up there there was uh, a few interesting things that like once I got them to rate, I, I got them to well, why did you give that rating? And the students that kind of liked in-person classes more, they liked it predominantly for two reasons. One being they like to be around other students. They found, you know, online learning very lonely. And the other one was um, if they had a question, they can get their question answered immediately. Um, the students on the other side who preferred um, the online teaching, especially the, I was teaching video, so there was a, this was an... It was an asynchronous um, class, but we met once or twice a week. It ended up being twice um, to kind of do a uh, you know question class and example class. So if students had any questions about the videos, I would answer it for them, and I would just do a whack of examples. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, we had those. So it was kind of a hybrid asynchronous synchronous, but I would you know it's probably sixty forty asynchronous. But the reason that the students liked the videos, and this is something that I didn't really think of, is that they found it 
especially students that weren't particularly strong mathematically, they found it a lot easier to rewind a video and watch me explain the concept again than they found it kind of just reading their own notes. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that, and that really affected my teaching as well in the way that if there is kind of a concept that's a little more difficult for students to understand, it makes sense just, you know, record a little five or 10 minute video about it and post that so students can rewatch it and, you know, slow down, pause, rewind, whatever. So it gives students more flexibility that way. Um, there were there's a lot there were a lot of universities, and this is kind of more in the states that kind of said, yeah, you know what, these dual uh, access style classes, so both in person, online, synchronous or asynchronous, these are great. But they said, well, the instructor can just like do both at the same time. It's still one class. How hard can it be? And those classes. You know, this is anecdotal, but those classes did not work out well at all. You know, um, that to really deliver a good dual mode class, you need the correct technology, the correct resources. And I think CBU is starting to get there. I think these dual mode classrooms, you know, that's one of the easiest ways because you just, you know, as an instructor, there's very little kind of pain to set up. You're teaching the class the way you would normally teach the class except you hit a button and now these cameras just follow you around and display you know, what you're doing to the, the online students. Um, and the other thing that CBU is doing that's really good is they're, um, they're supplying a facilitator to handle um, online students' questions, especially if you have a large group. Um, it's really hard to say, all right, I'm gonna pause class right now and scroll through the chat. Do I, is there any questions? Oh, there's this question, but we already answered that. All right, hold on, let me scroll again. Oh, do I miss any? And that kind of, you know, breaks your flow and takes away from, uh, you know, from the, the instructing experience, both for the instructor and uh, both, both groups of students, the in-person and, and online. So I think having, you know, a an online facilitator immensely helpful. And if it comes down to it, and I don't know if, you know, if... Um, we're looking at doing this, but I think it would be an interesting experiment to um, try one of these dual mode classes with uh, with one of the the math um, courses. Yeah, I mean the, the Center for Teaching and Learning would absolutely love to work with the math department to try and see, you know, what are the types of changes. There, there's another faculty member in a social sciences that we're currently working with her to develop her um, course for dual mode. Now, a lot of the stuff that she has already created and, and has used in her course uh, previously, um, it just applies. It, it actually doesn't matter whether you're in a dual mode room or not, but the, the most pressing issue is engagement and how do, you, how do you not only make those online students feel like they're in that classroom with you, the technology certainly helps with that, and yeah. um, there was a, a lot of uh, effort and design put into these rooms so that it does bring down that barrier as much as possible. Um, but then also, you know, how to get those in-person students to relate to the online students and to, to feel like one cohort. Or if you have more students online and maybe, you know, one or two that show up in the classroom, how do you ensure that there's not a significant amount of pressure put on those students for being the ones who are actually there in person? So there's lots of things to iron out. And, and um, you know, over the last year or so, we've been working with faculty to see what kind of changes need to be made. And there's, in fact, um, probably the, the, the most amount of dual mode courses all at once being offered right now. Um, at the time this is being recorded, it's in uh, uh, July 2022 um, during the Master in Business Administration um, Community Economic Development July intensive. And so, you know, we have three classrooms going at once from morning until um, you know, about five o'clock from eight until five, where students are coming in from all over, right? Yeah, yeah. And to see different people handle it different ways, and who um, who is successful at different kind of components of it, um, doing things like breakout rooms and and that sort of stuff, or ensuring that students have their cameras on because you know that uh, the faculty member can actually look at them and look at them in the eyes and answer their questions. So it's all rather interesting. I'm curious on that note, as we're talking about kind of like a, a, a futurism yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, in course delivery, what are 
what are some things that you're excited about exploring? Uh, you know, right now you're working on this open educational resource for math educators. Um, where are some further fields that you'd like to uh, explore, you know, next? All right. So um, the open educational resource textbook, that's going to, that's going to take a long time. Turns out that <laughs> writing a textbook is very hard. And <laughs> hopefully if you're listening to this in the future, I've actually done this <laughs> and it's out there. <laughs> but um, I really want to, to polish that up. I think that's, it's a, I found there was a real need for that uh, in the way that I've looked at various mathematics for education students courses across the country. And more so than any other math course, the material that's covered, the way it's covered, and um, the book that they're using differs incredibly wildly, basically, from university to university, which kind of is the stark opposite to something like calculus. In calculus, most universities, at least, let's say, 10 years ago, I'll, yeah, just, just to make it a little more accurate, 10 years ago, most universities were using this book called Stewart's Calculus. You know, this guy came up with the calculus book. It's pretty good, um, but everybody's using it, so calculus is taught in a very standardized way. But um, math for elementary school teachers, or courses along those lines, are so wildly different. A lot of times, um, professors are just using their own notes, and they don't use, they they haven't assigned a textbook. Ones that have assigned textbooks have assigned textbooks that cover different things. And um, I don't know of two classes out there that I've looked at. I haven't looked at all of them, but I've looked at a, you know a, a dozen or so. None of them are using the same textbook, which is pretty wild. The focus is is so all over the place. I think some sort of resource that. Um, that uh, instructors can use that's kind of tailored to elementary school and junior high school future teachers in Canada that's free for them and accessible and um, includes not just kind of textbooks things like you know paragraphs of, of explanation with examples and then some exercises for themselves there's things like embedded videos and embedded questions so that they can try it and get immediate feedback so that's kind of the the, the goal the overarching vision but um, yeah something like that I think that would be immensely helpful for um, for instructors of these courses and for the students taking them so that's kind of that's my big focus right now um, other than that I've been thinking so the the type of um, math that I was doing this asymptotic group theory involves a lot of combinatorics you're counting things right so I don't want to go about this in in much detail but I have been thinking more of the combinatorial side of things lately rather than kind of the symmetry side of things so in terms of kind of actual math you know pure mathematics research I might start looking at more combinatorial problems maybe still related to to symmetries and groups or various other algebraic structures structures, but still in that combinatorial sense. I've been really interested in, in combinatorics lately. Well, that's excellent. Um, I, I'm i excited to look at, yeah, I guess, probably in, in 10 years or 15 years or so and see if you were successful by changing how math is taught across yeah. Canada, whether or not that's filtered down into the junior high and high school and produced a bunch of people that are passionate about math. Yeah. So. Honestly, it's a, it's a battle that lots of people have tried. Yeah. But, okay, the thing is, people have been trying, but I think people have been trying to change mathematics to what they think is the right, quote-unquote. I'm doing a lot of air quotes here. You know, the right way that mathematics should be taught. And a lot of times, kind of, the, you know, there's... The two camps that are diametrically opposed trying to change the way mathematics is taught. So a lot of times nothing changes because they kind of, in some sense, politically cancel each other out. So, I mean, there's a very good chance that nothing will come of this. But I think from the university standpoint where it's usually 
mathematicians teaching these math for elementary school school teachers courses and they just want students to kind of learn as much math in the best way possible um that you know there's a a real opportunity there to to do some good for for both teachers and future uh school students and that's that's kind of my goal whether this changes mathematics you know at the, the Department of Education level, I don't know about that. I, I have no, <laughs> no big, uh, you know, plans for that. Just because I, you know, I think it's too hard right now. Well, um, uh, on that note, I want to thank you for coming in and have a conversation with us. Uh, I'm excited to see um, what you end up uh, producing. I wish you the best of luck in writing your book. I will need luck for this, honestly, <laughs> but thank you. And uh, I hope you come back and have another conversation with us in another time um, uh, because I think I think what you're doing is fantastic. So Yeah, no, it's always great to chat with you, AJ. I'm always, always happy to be back. Thanks a lot, Shannon. All right, thank you. You're listening to Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode. It was really great to talk to my friend Shannon. We're friends outside of work, um, and so I'm excited to have him home too and to see all the great work he's doing. Um, special thanks again to my CTL team. We have Debbie, Nicole, Terry, Rod, Laura, and Courtney. Listen in for a new episode of Beyond the Class coming up in a few weeks. We have Andy Parnaby talking about academic integrity. Thank you very much and talk soon.